Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. We are so glad you are joining us midweek. Today's message was given by Pastor DJ Ritchie during our Sunday evening service on August 23rd, 2020, and was the first message in his series on Galatians. We want to encourage you to join us in person at one or all of our services. Our doors are open Sunday mornings at 10.30, Sunday nights at 7 o'clock, Wednesdays at 6.45. If you have not yet subscribed, please do. When you do, you will receive a notification each time we post a new message, and will always be up to date. We hope this message would be an encouragement to you as you follow Jesus. So grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get... thank you for the unimaginable gift that you have given us in sending your son Jesus Christ to die for our sins. God, raising him from the dead, offering us, while we were yet sinners, offering us your love, your grace, your friendship, your fatherhood. God, that we uh, could be called the children of God. What an incredible, awesome thing. And God, we will spend all of eternity Uh, learning just how awesome a blessing that is. And so, God, we want, as we open your word tonight, to recapture some of the awe that we have lost as we think about the gospel. And I just pray, God, as we uh, start this new book study together, that, God, you will uh, kindle in us a fire to share this hope uh, with the lost and dying world around us. We love you and thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Great to see all the youth up there as they take off. Love seeing that. Who here has seen the game show To Tell the Truth? Okay, not as many as I thought, but many of you have seen it. It's been around since 1956. It's uh, had about six major uh, iterations. It's had, I think, nine hosts over those decades. Started out on CBS, moved to NBC, now it's on ABC. Uh, I haven't seen it in about 20 years, so you, I, I can't say that I'm, that I'm a big fan. Last time I saw it, uh, uh, John O'Hurley was, was hosting it, but uh, it's an interesting concept. I used to play this game to tell the truth when I was a youth pastor with, with our youth. And for those of you who haven't seen the show. Basically, the premise is very simple. You have three people come out, all claiming to be the same person, all claiming to have done the same thing. And then on the other side, you have, I think it's four contestants now uh, that are trying to guess who is telling the truth. And so on the one hand, you get rewarded if you can guess the truth. On the other side, you get rewarded if you can tell a lie. <laughs> you get rewarded for deceiving people. And so we play that sometimes in youth group. I, it, the teens weren't as excited about that game as I was. I, I always thought it was interesting because it kind of helped me learn, learn about the teens a little bit too. And, and it was just kind of a, a nice change of pace game. But to tell the truth. You know, we play that game at church a lot without realizing it. Who is real and who is not real? And we especially play this when we talk about false teachers. 
Who is the truthful teacher and who is the false teacher? How do we tell the difference between somebody who's a false teacher and maybe just a bad teacher? Because sometimes it's not that somebody's a heretic, it's just that maybe they have some bad theology or maybe they've uh, had some bad teaching. Uh, I think of uh, Apollos in the book of Acts. Who he was a great evangelist, but he had some he had some gaps in his theology, and God used Aquila and Priscilla to come alongside him and fill in some of those gaps to uh, improve his uh, teaching and his preaching and his leadership. He's a very gifted man, very great evangelist, and yet he had some areas we we certainly would not call him a false teacher. He was a a great man of God. Nevertheless, the Bible is clear that there are many false teachers. It's amazing how often the apostles in the New Testament warn us about this. And in the book of Acts, how many times we're shown the false teachers at work and uh, the impact. And Paul, when he met with the uh, elders at Ephesus for the very last time, he met with them and with tears said that some of you guys are going to go rogue and some of you guys are going to turn out to be false teachers. And, uh, of course, we... No, even among Jesus' disciples, there was a wolf in sheep's clothing named Judas Iscariot. And the only one who knew it was Jesus himself. Jesus wasn't fooled. But the other apostles were so fooled that they gave Judas charge of the money. So Judas was uh, pretty convincing in his ability to lie and deceive and tell tell people uh, who he was not. Convince them of what he was not. So I want you to turn with me to the book of Galatians. We're going to start a study on this. I I find it an amazing book. In fact, when God was uh, reviving me back, I guess, about 14 years ago now, uh, 14, 12, it was a a process of of dealing with some uh, junk in my life and and some uh, horrible habits and and getting my focus back on what God had called me to do and who God had called me to be. This is one of the key books that God used in waking me up and getting me refocused, the book of Galatians. And so uh, I want to, over the next few months, take you through this amazing book. It's probably the very first letter that Paul wrote. Now, there's some debate about that. There are really two camps, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here at the beginning of this series uh, going into the academics and the the debates, but just to summarize it, uh, the traditional view is that Paul wrote this letter. It was probably the third, second or third letter that he wrote after first, maybe second Thessalonians, uh, and he wrote it in the early to mid-50s, A.D. 50s, um, and he wrote it to the uh, Galatians who lived in North Galatia. Uh, but I would follow um, Chuck Swindoll and, and others who believe that this was more likely the very first letter that he wrote. It was written probably before the Jerusalem Council. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 2, uh, for those of you who are interested in that, in that debate. But probably at the very end of the 8040s, he wrote this. This was probably the very first letter that Paul wrote prior to the Jerusalem Council. And it's his harshest letter. Now, when, when I was uh, a teacher, one thing that you're told as a teacher is start out tough and then ease up. Because if you try to do it the other way, 
if you, if you try to start out uh, laid back and easy and then get tougher, uh, your students will react. But if you start out tough and then you ease up a little bit, then, then they appreciate it. And I see that in what Paul is doing here, but, it, but this isn't just a, a teaching tactic that he's using. He's dealing uh, with something that is of absolute critical importance. He's dealing, uh, more than likely, he's dealing with the southern Galatian churches that he himself was involved in planting, and he has personal relationship with them. And because of the harshness of his tone, he wants to begin this letter, Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He says, look, I want you to understand that this message is coming from God. My authority in writing this letter to you is coming from God. This is not because I'm in a bad mood. This is not because I don't love you anymore. In fact, he's going to very clearly tell them, I love you very much. But because I love you as much as I do, I, I need to share some very hard truths about you. And what I want to do tonight, a couple things. First of all, I want to give you an overview of this book so that you can see the flow and Paul's thought process and so that you can see how everything fits together. And then with the time that we have left, we're just going to unpack the first five verses of Galatians chapter 1. And we'll, we'll take a deep dive into that uh, particular section and we'll define the gospel. Define the gospel. But the theme of this book really is living the gospel or living the resurrected life. You say, what, what does that mean? I, I heard somebody who, who's a semi-popular podcaster criticizing that term, living the gospel. What does that mean, living the gospel? Here's what it means. It means living in light of the realities of the gospel. It's Galatians 2.20, which is probably, we would say, the theme verse of this entire book. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. That's living the gospel. That's living the resurrected life. And that's what Paul wants for you and for me. And he's willing to, to speak in some very hard tones at, time, at times to get that message across. Now, the reason that he is writing this gospel, the reason that he has written, written a letter about how to live the gospel and how to live the resurrected life is because of what was happening in these churches that he so dearly loved. Within a very short period of time, Paul started churches in southern Galatia on his very first missionary journey. And yet, even though these churches were started by Paul and they were started with pure doctrine and they were started by an apostle and the apostle to the Gentiles, no less, Nevertheless, false gospel had come into the church very quickly. And legalism had spread in the church faster than COVID. And Paul was perplexed and distressed and upset at how this church, that these churches could really, this is the, this is the only letter that Paul wrote to, a, to an entire group of churches. Uh, Paul is writing to these churches and, and he's just shocked at how they are dropping like dominoes in, in terms of the purity of the gospel that they are preaching. And so he writes this letter to confront this false gospel and to confront this legalism that had quickly spread like a spiritual pandemic through South Galatia. 
Now, there are four major sections of, these book, of, of this book of Galatians, and uh, there are four major themes that I want you to see over, the Lord willing, the next few months. Favor, faith, freedom, and fruit. Living the gospel, living the res- resurrected life is about living out God's favor. It's about living uh, by faith. It's about living in freedom, and it's about living a life that produces spiritual fruit. Those, those are the four themes. Now, there is a little bit, as we'll see, there's a little bit of overlap on the sections. Not much, but I'll show you here in just a second uh, how we can very clearly, as we track with Paul, we can very clearly see his, his emphasis shift. And the reason that that's significant is because these four things build upon one another. I am often reminded how amazing it is that Paul repeatedly and frequently preached the gospel to people already saved. Paul frequently preached the gospel to men who were pastors like Timothy and Titus and people who were already saved because, guys, it is very easy even as Christians to lose the purity, the simplicity of Jesus Christ as Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. To be deceived, just as our first mother, Eve, was deceived by the serpent, so Paul says we are often easily deceived and turned from the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of who Jesus Christ is. And we mix the gospel with legalism. We mix the gospel with other things. And we, uh, Lord willing, will touch on some of those things next week. But this is about understanding the gospel, understanding what it means. And it's interesting that Paul follows the same pattern in this book from favor to faith to freedom to fruit as he does in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I want you to think about those three verses. For by grace. The Greek word for grace literally means favor. That's what it means. Grace is not just what you need to get saved. Grace is the favor of God that you do need to get saved, but you need as a child of God to get through every day. I need God's grace every day. I didn't just need God's grace when I received Christ as a child. I need God's grace every single day. I need to live in his favor. Now, when I sin and I do sin... Uh, and thank God I haven't, I haven't disqualified myself from ministry, but there, there was a time when I was in my 30s when God did pull me out of ministry for a few years because, again, I had to, I had to really refocus. I had to deal with some things that, that some habits that had d- developed in my life and some strongholds that, that had built up in my life, and I needed to, to re-qualify to, to lead and to teach and to pastor and so God took me through a season of a couple of years where, where God worked some things out of my life. Uh, but we all need to live in God's favor. It, we, we don't cease to be God's children when we sin. But we can uh, break that fellowship. We can break that, that, that free freedom of our relationship with him. He's our father. But just like you've, I'm sure, experienced with Uh, with a parent or as a parent with a child, I'm sure that there was a time in your life when you experienced you're still the child or you're still the parent, you're still that love there, 
but the love is strained because uh, the favor is being hindered <laughs> because of, of some choices that the child, generally speaking, uh, some choices that the child is making. So by grace are you saved. That's God's favor. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So we see favor, but how do we receive God's favor? It's received through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The word faith in, in the Greek literally means to be persuaded. I used to believe this. And by the way, Romans 10 says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So I used to believe this about my sin, but God's word has spoken to me and God's word has persuaded me. And by faith, I now understand this about my sin. I used to think this about who Jesus was, but God's word has persuaded me. And, and now I've, I've changed my mind. The Bible word for that is repent. I've changed my mind about who Jesus is. And I now understand this because I've received what, what God's word has taught me. I used to believe this about hell and heaven and, and God's word has persuaded me. And now I understand this and and we need uh, repentance and we need faith to come to Christ. But we also, again, as Christians, need to walk by faith. We, faith is not just what you need to get in the door. Faith is what you need to live the life that God has called you to live. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Not of works. That's freedom, folks. That's freedom right there. It's not of works. It's not just you don't have to have works. It's you can't have works. And there's a big difference. See, there are some people who teach a false gospel that says you, that God opened the door, but you need your good works to get you through the door. All that Jesus did on the cross was he opened the door, he made it possible, but you got to work your way in. you got to earn your way in. And the gospel says, no, you can't earn your way in. You can't earn it. And you have to continually remind yourself that we live in freedom. We are not under the law. We are redeemed from the law, as we'll see as we get farther into this book. And then that brings us to fruit, for we are his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10 says. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the fruit, that the spiritual fruit that we're to produce in our life. And we're going to see as we go through this book together that Paul is going to track with those four themes. Now let's, let's look more closely at each of these themes before we get into uh, verses 1 through 5. Living the gospel is living in favor. That's the first section. That brings us uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. That's going to take us through chapter 2, verse 21. And Paul's emphasis there is going to be this. Who am I trying to please with my Christian life? That's a question that we all need to ask ourselves every day. Who am I trying to please today? Now, yes, there's a certain sense in which, as a husband, I, I need to please my wife. I need to love her as Christ loved the church. I need to be uh, self-sacrificing. There's, there's certainly a, a sense in which I need to uh, please my son, although that is a lot different than living to please my wife because, as a parent, uh, we understand that discipline and we understand that love looks very differently uh, when we're disciplining a young child um, then even as, as we grow older, my relationship with my dad and my mom today, of course, is much different than it was when I was a child. But we want to we wanna ultimately live to please Jesus Christ. That's who we're ultimately supposed to be living to please, not just my wife, not just my 
children, not just my brothers and sisters, not my parents, not my friends, not the people at church I'm trying to impress. Who am I trying to please? Is it God or man? And at some point, you're going to have to choose. We'll see that next week more closely when we get to verse 10. But ultimately, you will, you will have to choose. Who are you going to try to please? Who's, who's the priority? Now, we see that grace is the, the, the favor. Again, the Greek word for grace literally means favor. We see the point of emphasis in this section. Uh, Paul uses the word grace seven times uh, in the book of Galatians, but five times in this section. And so as we see in verse 10, I must focus on pleasing God not others and not myself. Just go ahead and look at verse 10 again. We'll, we'll take a deep dive into this verse next week. But he says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Of course, there is a sense in which we want to meet people's needs. Uh, absolutely. And, and we all want people to like us. That's, that's not a sin to want people to like you. But what is the priority of your life? Is it all about being a people pleaser or are you a God pleaser? Living the gospel is living in favor. The second section that we see beginning in chapter 2, verse 16. Again, there's a little bit of overlap on these. Uh, and it's carrying into chapter 3, verse 26, is living the gospel is living by faith. Once we understand who we're living for, how do we live for him? We live by faith. And so who am I trying to please then turns into how am I trying to please him. How am I trying to live out the Christian life? And this is a major, major point of emphasis. In fact, it's very clearly seen just in how many times Paul uses the word faith or a form of the word faith, the word faithful. 23 times in the book, 18 times just in these verses, just in this section. Faith, faithful, faith, faithful, faith, faithful. And the emphasis there is going to be as we get there, Lord willing, I must place my hope in what Christ has done for me, not in what I have done for him. Friend, brother, sister, your hope is in what Jesus Christ has done for you, not in what you're doing for him. Now, fruit is important. It is. But it is not the gospel that you have to maintain a certain level of fruit to earn it, to get in. God did not just open the door so you could work your way in. Uh, we need to walk by faith, and we need to, as we are walking by faith, demonstrate that, that we're being faithful to the gospel, which, again, is focusing on what Christ has done for us, not on what we are doing for him in terms of our hope, in terms of our hope, our security. Number three, uh, when we get to chapter three, we'll see that living the gospel is also living with freedom. And we'll ask this question, how am I experiencing liberty in my life? How am I experiencing Christian liberty? Uh, again, we see the point of emphasis in this section, free or free woman. The words free or free woman appear seven times in this book and in this section alone. Uh, he uses the word liberty four times in this book. Three of those times are in this particular section. And again, Paul's uh, main focus uh, is on freedom. And how does he picture that? How does he emphasize that? He talks about our liberation from slavery to sonship. In this section, you are no longer a slave. You are a son, a daughter of the living God. And so what we'll see is that when we talk about freedom, I must live as a child of God in Christ. God doesn't want you to live as a slave to the law. We're not under the law. We're under grace. And there are responsibilities to that. And we'll get to that in just a second. But we're not slaves to the law. We're not slaves to rituals. 
We're not slaves to those who are not the one true God. We are children of God in Christ Jesus. Neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, but in Jesus Christ we are all one. And then that will bring us into chapter 5, verse 13, uh, through chapter 6, verse 10, which is uh, all about really the fruit of our life, what our life is ultimately producing and how to produce the right fruit. What is my life producing? That's the question that we ultimately want to get to. The resurrected life is a life that is producing life, producing fruit. Now, fruit, the word fruit only appears once in this section, and, and I'm sure you're, you're familiar with it. If you're here at Memorial Heights Baptist Church on a Sunday night, I'm, I'm sure that at some point someone has shared with you the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, etc., uh, nine different descriptions there of the fruit of the Spirit. But is, are those the descriptions of my life? Is that what my life is producing? How do I produce that kind of life? Because ultimately, even though the word fruit appears only once, he uses the word reap four times in chapter 6 in those verses. Reaping. We reap what we sow. And so we want a life that is reaping eternal rewards. And as we're going to see uh, to accomplish that, I must live by the power of the Spirit, not the lust of the flesh. I don't live by my emotions. Emotions can be good, but they can also be very deceptive. They can also be very destructive. Emotions are, as somebody once said, emotions are a wonderful servant and a horrible master. And so we must live not by the lust of the flesh, not by our heart. It's not follow your heart. It's not... What the heart wants what the heart wants. It's none of that. That's garbage. It's what does the Spirit command in His Word? And how does then, as I'm in the Word of God, how does the Spirit lead and guide me? And when we walk in the Spirit, the promise is we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And on the contrary, we're going to produce love and joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. So that's the overview of the book. That gives you an idea of what we're going to be talking about over the next few months. With that in mind, let's start at the beginning. And even though we're only going to look and unpack the first five verses, I want you to read with me the first ten. We'll, we'll read verse one and ten again as we read these verses together because I want you to see the context of what Paul is talking about here. So go with me again as we talk about God's favor. And what we're going to see is that uh, this is about living in God's favor, not for man's favor. And there is a major, major difference. It's the difference between night and day. Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed." As we have said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. 
Again, this is not Paul's opinion. This is not Paul's authority in, in man. This is Paul's authority in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's authority in God the Father. Paul is speaking on the authority of God, and he is saying, if you preach any gospel other than that which ye have received, let that preacher be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I shall not be the servant of Christ. Now, Paul starts out by defining the gospel. And he gives us the essential beliefs of a Christian. These are the bare minimum things you must understand if you want to say that you are a Christian, if you want to truly be a Christian. So let's play to tell the truth and let's ask some questions. And let's see if we can see whether or not somebody's a false teacher or just maybe a, a misguided teacher or a bad teacher or if they're a true teacher of the gospel. And for all of us, this is something that we also need to look in the mirror. Paul said to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. There's nothing to worry about if you truly understand the gospel. There's nothing to worry about to, to take that test. So well, let's take the test. Here are some things that all true Christians believe. These are essential facts about Christ. Now, there are different ways that people go about presenting the gospel. Uh, some of us uh, came to Christ by somebody sharing with us what, what we call the Romans road uh, or uh, the sport, four spiritual laws or uh, some people use the, the color system and they tie verses in with the colors. And, and there are different ways that, that people share the gospel. But these are the essential elements of, of any kind of gospel presentation that you give. These are the things that must be in it. This is, the bare, this is the bare essential. Again, Paul says in verse 6 um, that you are removed from him that called you un from the grace of Christ unto another gospel. But verse 7, there is not another. So this is, what, this is it. This is the one gospel. If you add to this, it's not the gospel. It's another gospel, but it's not the true one. If you subtract from this, it's not the true gospel. So this is absolutely important. And again, Paul is preaching to people who are already saved, and he does this throughout his writings. He wants Christians to remember what the gospel is so that we can define it, so that we can, Lord willing, next week, as we'll talk about, defend it. So what I like to do as I read these verses, I, I, I try to simplify this as much as I can, and there are three things that the gospel is all about. Who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why Jesus did it. You need to have those three things as part of your gospel presentation. Who is Jesus? What did he do? Why did he do it? Let's look at these verses again. Jesus Christ, God the Father who raised him from the dead. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. So who Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Paul says he is our Lord Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. Now, there is a tremendous amount of truth in those two statements, and these are essential truths. Jesus Christ is Lord, and he has been raised from the dead. So let's walk through that for just a second. What does it mean when we say that Jesus is Lord? Well, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, 
We call it the Septuagint. The translators did not want to place the uh, sacred name of God in the Septuagint. And so what they would do is whenever they would see the, the name of God, Yahweh, they would replace it with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, understand that they didn't actually write in those English letters, but whenever they wrote the, the Greek word for Lord, whenever they wrote Adonai, they, they would put, um, uh, which I believe is the correct word. You, you, you know more Greek than I do, Andy. You, you got your, your degree. Um, I, well, you got your, did you get your doctorate? Not yet? Okay. You got your master's. So, okay. So Andy knows more Greek than I do, so I'll check with Andy if I have a question on Greek. But uh, when they translated the word, uh, when, they, when they took it into the Greek language, what they did was they, they took the word Lord and they put it all capital letters. And that's why in English, when you're reading a Bible and you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the covenant name of God. That's the name Yahweh. That has not been placed in the English text, but it, that's what that word represents, the covenant name of God. And so this was the Bible of the early church. This was the Bible of the Dysphoria. This was the Bible that the Jews in Galatia would have had. Uh, this was their Bible. And so when we see Lord, we need to understand that Lord is the identification of the God of the Old Testament. That we are identifying the deity of Jesus Christ when we call him Lord. Christ uh, is Messiah, is anointed one. Uh, Messiah in, is the transliteration from Hebrew. Mashiach into English is translated as Messiah. When it is translated Messiah into Greek, it is Christos, which transliterates into English as Christ. Have I confused anybody yet? Messiah and Christ are the exact same word from two different languages. They both mean anointed one. And so we bring them into the English, and they seem like two very different words, but they're not. They're the same word. One is taken from Hebrew. One is taken from Greek. But we're talking about Jesus being the anointed one. And so what are we saying? When we say that we must believe that, that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he has been raised from the dead. So I must believe, to be, to be a Christian, I must believe that Jesus is the risen God-man. I must believe that he is God, the Son of God, who was able to raise from the dead. But the fact that he was dead means he was also fully man. I, I must believe that he was man. Otherwise, if he was not man, he could not die in Adam's place. He could not die for the sons of Adam unless he was a son of Adam. So to be a Christian, I must understand he is the Son of God, that he's fully God, fully man. Please understand that you don't have to have, when we talk about essential truths, I'm not saying you have to have a doctorate-level understanding of this. You just need a childlike understanding of this. You have to have the faith of a child. You don't need to understand all of the implications of that. We spend our whole lives unpacking that and, and growing in that and learning that. But we need to have an understanding that he's the son of God and that he is a man. And we also have to understand that he is God's chosen one. You say, what does that mean? Well, John 14, 6 says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. So if you believe that Jesus is a way to heaven and not the way to heaven, then you are not a true Christian. If you're watching tonight and you think that Jesus is one of the ways that God has provided, then that is not true Christianity. That it, you, you have been lied to. 
You must believe he is the chosen one, that he is the Messiah. He is the one that God chose to provide the way of salvation. And all of that is in those words. I have to understand he's the son of God. I have to understand he is the son of man, that he is God and man. Again, I don't have to, listen, I'm 47 years old. I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I don't completely understand that. I expect a thousand, a million years from now, I'm still going to be working all that out. All right? Because that is a deep, deep mystery. There are things, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. These things have been revealed to us and they belong to us. What, we, what has been revealed belongs to us, but there are things that, that only belong to God because he, he is infinite. He is creator. We are creation. Number two, what did Jesus do? He gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. Now, again, there's a lot in that statement. What Paul is saying is that I must believe, I must confess that I'm a sinner to be saved. I'm a sinner. Jesus is my sacrifice. Jesus is my substitute. Jesus paid my price. Jesus paid for my sins. You cannot call Christ your Savior if you do not know what he has saved you from. If you don't know what Jesus has saved you from, he is not your Savior. Jesus did not just come to save you from your brokenness. He did not just come to save you from sickness. He did not just come to save you from loneliness. He did not just come to save you from hell. Hell is the consequence of the problem. The problem is sin. We are all sinners. He gave himself for our sin. And so to to become a Christian is to identify that you are a sinner. And, and this is the stumbling block for many people. They don't want to confess that. They don't want to admit that. They want to justify themselves. I'm not as bad as she is. I'm not as evil as he is. I must believe I'm a sinner. I must believe that Jesus, again, you don't have to understand all of the theological details of, of, of these statements, but you have to have a childlike understanding that Jesus died for your sins that you're a sinner and Jesus died for your sins. That's, that's what you need. And First uh, John 2, uh, 1 through 2, he's the propitiation, he's the payment for our sins. And John says, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died for the whole world, not just for some of the world. Um, there are some people who read that verse and they say, well, I know it says Jesus died for the whole world, but that's not what John meant. Uh, that's what John meant. John said what he meant. Jesus died for everyone, not just for those he knew would receive him. So uh, he's, the sinless he's the sinless substitutionary sacrifice for my sin. Why did he do it? Why did Jesus do it? That he might deliver us from this present evil world. Understand this. Salvation brings instant change. Instant change. Now, the process of sanctification, the process of sanctification is a lifelong process. That is the process where we are made more and more like Jesus. Uh, That's really what sanctification, man, I can't say sanctification tonight. That is what sanctification is all about. It's a lifelong process. But you're saved the moment you receive Christ as your Savior 
and then the process of becoming more like him begins. But salvation is not a process. The, the, the receiving of Christ is not a process. Justification, declare, being declared legally righteous in heaven is an instantaneous thing. Jesus said you are born again. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. I must believe, to be a Christian, I must believe that I am not working towards my salvation, but that I can be saved here and now, that, that deliverance is here and now. Jesus saved me, I am saved now. I am, I am not hoping that I get in. You, you understand that, that the Romanists, what I'm saying to you, the Romanists say is anathema. How dare you say that you have eternal life today? How dare you say that, that, you, that you have hope in Christ, that, that, you're, that you're sure that you're sure that you know that you know? Well, that's what the Bible says. I stand on the Word of God. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, as I'm teaching my son. I must believe that Jesus is the God-man He's the only way to the Father. I must believe that I am a sinner, that Jesus is my sinless substitute, that he paid for my sin. And I must believe that, that salvation is instantaneous, that I am born again. When I receive Christ by faith, I receive God's grace. I am a new creation. I'm not hoping to get saved. When I, I, I'm not waiting till I get baptized. I'm not waiting to see if I can keep it up. I am born again. And and Paul says, this was done according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, salvation through Christ alone is the Father's eternal plan for his eternal glory. This is the plan. There is no plan B. Jesus is not plan B. There is one plan. You can admit that you're a sinner. I don't know how. Well, I do know how because we're sinners. We don't want to admit that we're sinners because we're sinners. But is there anything that there, is, <laughs> that there is more evidence for than our own sinfulness? I mean, you live with yourself. You know. You know. I live with myself. I know. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Jesus died and paid for my sin, and I received that forgiveness simply by grace through faith. And I was born again, new creation. Now, the process of living in freedom, the process of producing fruit, that's a lifelong thing, but salvation was a moment. Now, here's what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to take these truths, and we're going to use them to defend the gospel. Because, again, Paul said there's only one gospel. Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. Well, you need to be baptized. That's not the gospel. Well, you need to give to the church, and that's not the gospel. I heard a nationally known pastor, I won't say his name, say that if you're not giving to the poor, you're probably not saved. That is not the gospel. There is nothing that you add. You don't add social work. You don't add good deeds. You don't add anything to what Paul says, anything that you add is not grace. And as Paul says, it's all about the grace of Christ. It's about God's favor on you, and you receive that simply by faith. Jesus plus anything, Jesus minus any part of that is not the gospel. Some people think they're saved, but they don't really believe Jesus physically rose from the dead. That Jesus is not the real Jesus. He cannot save you. 
you're believing in a false Jesus. Jesus who became God, Jesus who became God is not the real Jesus. That Jesus can't save you. If your hope is in a false Jesus, you, are, you have a false hope. So we need to understand the very core basics of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why he did it. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for what we can only scratch the surface of, your amazing, incredible love for us in sending Jesus to die for our sins in raising him from the dead. God, the gift is so amazing. It feels like there's something that we need to do to add to it. But God, it is all you and none of us. It is all your grace, none of our works, so that none of us can boast. And God, you love us, and, you, and even while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And so, and so God, we want to lift up the name of Jesus. God, if there's somebody here tonight, they, they have a false hope. They have a false, they've been trusting in a false Jesus. God, I pray that tonight would be the night when they meet the one true Jesus Christ who will save them forever and ever by his grace through faith. We love you. We thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Another great message from Pastor DJ. I hope this has found you well and has made an impact on your life in the name of Jesus. If it has, please give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on and share it with a friend so others might be encouraged as well. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to hear from you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful.